We're going to be in John chapter 10, looking at the, the last half of John chapter 10. We looked at the first half of it last week, verses 22 through 42. Like so much of John's gospel, this passage is all about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, whether or not he's the one to come, the Christ. And throughout the book, Jesus we see him constantly battling those who don't believe him. And we come to another passage where he does the same thing again tonight. So let's read it together now. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is God's word. There are ultimately only two responses to Jesus. Fall at his feet in worship or pick up stones to kill him. It's been that way from the beginning. John's gospel shows us that. I mean, we find some, like the woman at the well, we saw in John chapter 4, who fall down and worship before him. We find others, like the religious leaders, like the Jews in this passage, who pick up stones to throw at him. Everyone Jesus met had one of those two reactions. Some aren't as obvious, some doubted before they believed. Nicodemus is one example of that. But in the end, it's either worship or total rejection. 
the real Jesus that we find in the Bible demands a response. And he will either make us happy or angry. But he won't leave us unchanged. Because the gospel never does nothing. Whenever we encounter God, we move closer to him or further from him, but we never remain the same. Now, the main goal of John's gospel has from, the begin, from beginning to end been deep and sincere belief in Jesus. That's what he wants for us. That's why he wrote it. He told us that at the end of his gospel. It's true of every part of this book. It's true of our passage today. And we've got kind of a big chunk today. But as you look at it, the text on your, 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 in your Bible there, it's really broken up into two main paragraphs. So we're going to take it in two main points. First, true belief in Jesus is a gracious gift and a rock-solid assurance. And second, true belief in Jesus is biblically reasonable and empirically verifiable. Let's take the first one. True belief in Jesus is a gracious gift and a rock-solid assurance. We're looking at verses 22 through 30, that chunk here. What we see at the beginning, in verse 22, John orients us by telling us where Jesus is and what the time of year is. It's the Feast of Dedication, which is called Hanukkah now today. It's winter. They're in the temple. Jesus went to the temple often. And the problem that day started as the Jews gathered around him with a question. We see it in verse 24. They jump right in. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Simple enough question, right? They wanted to know whether Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah or not. The thing is, this isn't the first time they've asked this question. They've asked it before, and Jesus has answered it before. As he said in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So not only had he said enough, but he had also done enough by this point. His words and his works bore witness about him. Have we not seen, as we've gone through John's gospel, clear expressions of who Jesus is from his own mouth, from his own hands? Didn't Jesus reveal himself as a long way to Messiah in his word and deed? They saw it firsthand, and still they wouldn't believe. He's continuing the figure of speech that he used in the passage we saw last week when he talked about him being the shepherd, them being the sheep. He picks that up again in verse 26, and he gives a very clear reason to them as to why they don't believe. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, the implication there is that true belief is a gift from God. Those who belong to Jesus' flock are those whom God chooses for eternal life, and they believe that Jesus is the Christ. They don't need constant proof. They hear his voice and they follow him. These Jews, not among Jesus' flock, couldn't believe because the gift of faith was not granted to them. So they couldn't hear his voice. They wouldn't hear his voice. It takes a new heart that's softened by the Holy Spirit to trust in Christ. 
sin deadens our heart to God. Only God can change the heart. Hard-hearted sinners come through the door of salvation by having their hearts melted by the grace of Jesus. And that melting happens as, as we hear the good news of his gospel and as we just accept him for who he really is. Now, a, a verse like that can be a hard saying, right? But we must remember that no one is good. No one deserves God because we've all rebelled against him with our sins. No one could naturally choose God because sin deadens our heart to him. We don't want him. He must first come to us and change our, our, our desires to want him. All those who go to hell are those who never wanted heaven anyway. And all those who go to heaven are those who all deserved hell, but received God's grace. True belief in Jesus is this undeserved gift of God. Now, Jesus told us in the first part of John 10 who the sheep were. We saw that last week. Who are they? They're the believers who put themselves in their shepherd's care, who enter by the door of Jesus and enjoy him. Here in verses 27 and 28, Jesus, he reveals the kind of gift and assurance that his grace grants to all of his sheep. Look at them. Verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. Now, I... I just want to look at, at, at those verses. I kind of double-click, open it up, zoom in. Let's see, what is Jesus saying there? Because I don't want to skip over those verses too quickly. They are some of the most assuring, most amazing verses in all of the Bible. This is coming from the mouth of Jesus, telling us the kind of assurance that we can have in what he has done and in who he is for us. I don't think we can find a more assuring passage anywhere else. So let's just take it phrase by phrase. Let's just let it land on us. First phrase. My sheep hear my voice. Later in John's gospel, we see an illustration of this. We see Mary Magdalene standing outside the tomb, weeping on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. You probably remember the story. She's there looking for him. Two angels appear to her and they ask, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She looked in the tomb and he was gone. And her heart just broke again. Jesus was dead and now even his body was missing. Her life was already shattered, and, and in that moment, it was just shattered all over again. But then she turned around, and she saw someone that she thought was the gardener. And she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
She's just, she's just dying to find Jesus. She's dying to find Jesus so much she can't even see him. <laughs> then this amazing thing happens. The, the man that she thought was the gardener was actually Jesus, but she couldn't see him yet. Not until Jesus does something. I wonder if you remember what. In John chapter 20, he looks at her and he says, Mary. And she knows him. That first Easter morning, Mary heard her shepherd's voice. He spoke directly to her heart by just saying her name. Not even the angels could make her feel better. But when Jesus spoke, she instantly knew it was him. Her tears went from sadness to joy. With one word, everything changed for her. If you are in Christ, you know something of that, don't you? He speaks to the deep places of our hearts. He uses our name in a way no one else can. Why? Because of the next phrase in verse 28. And I know them. When he speaks, you hear because he's speaking to you personally. You're not a nameless person in the crowd to him. Jesus knows you intimately. You are his. He knows you totally. He knows exactly what you need. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the difficulties. He knows the joys. He knows the uncertainties. He knows the depression and the anxiety. He knows all of your hopes, all of your dreams. He knows your longings. He knows your sins and your failures. He hears your prayers and he even prays on your behalf. Remember back in chapter 1 when, when Nathanael met Jesus? When Jesus saw him, he said to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? They never met. And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that did it for Nathanael. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, we have no idea what Nathaniel was doing underneath that fig tree. That's not for us to know. Apparently, it's just for Nathaniel and Jesus to know. You know, maybe he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. Maybe he was sitting there longing for God and, for, and praying. We just don't know. But whatever it was, it was the thing that made Nathaniel know that Jesus knew him. And Jesus knows you like that too. He truly, deeply knows you. Next phrase. And they follow me. What else are you going to do? <laughs> If someone speaks to your heart so deeply, I mean, who else knows you like him? Why would you not follow him? 
It's the, 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 the natural outflow of, of, of his grace. Your only calling in this life really, truly, is to follow him wherever he goes. That's all he's asking. I can't say where all those paths go that he might lead you down. Psalm 23 comes to mind. There might be some valleys of the shadow of death. But I do know that he will bring you out the other side, wherever he takes you. And you just have to trust him. We know the destination is glorious. That it's going to be worth the wait. It's going to be worth the hardship. It's going to be worth all of the fears and all of the doubts and all of the uncertainties. He will bring you all the way home to be with him in a restored and redeemed world where you have unhindered access to God for eternity. That's our future. He is leading you into green pastures and beside still waters. So the next phrase, I give them eternal life. The other day, we were driving to the little pond in our neighborhood where we go fishing, and two of my boys were talking to my young daughter, she's four, in the backseat of the car, and they mentioned, I don't know what they're talking about, they mentioned how everybody would die. And my precious daughter asked, Daddy, will everyone die? It, it was apparently news to her. <laughs> I told her that her brothers were right that everyone will die one day. And she said so innocently in a way only a child can, but, but Daddy, I don't want to die. So I told her that if she loves Jesus, death is nothing to fear because of this phrase right here in the Bible. Because he gives eternal life. And that seemed to settle her. <laughs> How it should settle us. Death. Where is his sting? Jesus has conquered him. He is utterly defeated. There's this great verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, that says that Jesus defeated death by going through it. He destroyed the devil and delivered all those who through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. I love that. This is how expansive the gospel is. Jesus is removing even the fear of death from us. The fear of death enslaves us, doesn't it? Forever, for our whole life. It's out there, it's looming, we know it's coming. And it can just bind us up. But if we have Jesus, those chains are broken. We can truly live now because we will truly live forever. If you are in Christ, you have this promise in black and white. I give them eternal life. In verse 10, which we saw last week, he already said that the life he gives is abundant life. Now, added to that abundance is eternality. Think about this. 
The life that your heart most longs for. The life that is so fulfilling that you can't wait to get up in the morning to go and live it. The life that's so deep and so rich and so meaningful. The life that is literally the ideal. That perfect life. That's yours. It's yours forever in Christ. And you know what? It's actually better than you can even imagine right now. That's what abundance means. So, okay, maybe the life that we're living right now here today isn't, isn't our best life. Jesus never said we were going to have that here. But there is another life to come. An eternal one, an abundant one. And you know what? Knowing that that life is out ahead actually changes our life here today, doesn't it? We can live in light of that. It's, like, it's almost like knowing that vacation is coming. We can all endure another day, right? <laughs> we can maybe even be excited about it. Next phrase. And they will never perish. The corollary to eternal life is, is the promise that you will never perish. You won't wear out. You will last forever with God. Why will you never perish? You will never perish because Jesus will never perish. And your life is hidden in him. You are as secure as he is. He lives for you. So sticks and stones may break your bones, but Jesus' word will forever save you. Next phrase. It's an amazing one. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I challenge you to find a more assuring phrase in the Bible than that. I'm so glad this is here. No wolf can sneak in and capture. No thief can come in through the back door and steal. Satan cannot snatch you away. You can't even ruin yourself. In Jesus' mighty hand, you are safe and secure. You have a rock-solid assurance that you will never be lost because Jesus has found you. And if that wasn't enough... <laughs> Jesus said even more in verses 29 and 30 to reinforce these already comforting words. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what Jesus is saying is, 
The Father himself stands behind Jesus' words here. If we doubt that Jesus can hold us tight, we also have the Father's grip. We're doubly secure here. If we doubt Jesus' words are true, we also have the Father's words. If we doubt that Jesus is working in concert with the Father, we can rest assured that he's not. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are united in mission to seek and save the lost and to keep and provide for the sheep. Whatever Jesus does only reveals to us the heart of the Father. And what does Jesus reveal about the Father's heart? That the Father himself loves you. There is no greater comfort than this. Think about it. We, how much of our day do we spend just wondering if, am I really loved? Maybe I am today, but what about tomorrow? Am I going to make it? I feel so weak. So wounded. I can just barely get out of bed some days. I know I don't deserve anything. And then we bump into a phrase like this in the Bible. A passage like this in the Bible. And it's not just another man standing there and saying, I love you. It's the God of the universe. The one who made you and remade you. The one who knows every single thing about you more than you even know yourself. Who wraps you in his grace. Who gives you his eternal life. You never need to doubt that you are truly loved. Jesus is the shepherd that we're all looking for. He's the one who can care for us powerfully, relentlessly, everlastingly. Now maybe, maybe you're not convinced yet. Some people aren't. Maybe this is all just sentimental talk. Maybe this is just Jesus hoodwinking his people. Maybe he's making it all up, gaining followers for his own ego. People do that, you know. But Jesus doesn't. Everything Jesus said and did is biblically reasonable and empirically verifiable, which is our second point. The Jews listening to Jesus, they did not find comfort in his words. They grew angry. Verse 31 says they picked up stones again to, th- to stone him. Again. It's in the first time. As they picked up the stones, Jesus asked the question in verse 32. Have I shown you many good works from the Father? For which of them are you going to stone me? It wasn't the works that angered them, though. It was the blasphemy, blasphemy of making himself God, though they believed he was only a man. They had asked for clarity from Jesus, and they got it. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, 
that was their final straw. They'd had enough. They'd heard enough. He was claiming equality and oneness with God. And he was, of course, right in saying that. And we just, thinking through what we just thought through, man, we need him to be God, don't we? But they didn't believe him. And if Jesus was not telling the truth, he would have been blasphemous. He would have deserved stoning. So it all came down to what they believed in that moment, and they believed he was lying. So what does Jesus do? He goes to the Bible. He does this all the time. But, I mean, think about how amazing this is. A mob is there surrounding him, pressuring him, with stones in, his, in their hands, and he has the calmness and the clarity of mind to recall a portion of Scripture that when, when we read it earlier, you probably didn't even know what it was talking about, to refute their argument. That's amazing to me. Now, what Jesus said isn't easy to understand. We need to look at it again in verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, particularly that verse where he said, I said, you are God's. That, that was, a, it was a pretty powerful statement in rabbinical thought and logic at the time. Jesus used that portion of scripture because those to whom the law was given meant that they could serve as God's representatives for justice in the world. They had authority from God through his revealed law. So if they were God's, the Israelites who received the law, then what about Jesus? What's the problem with Jesus saying he's a God? Wasn't he a God? He has authority. He has the law. Now, I'll say, this, this had far more weight on them than it does on us today, and it made them even angrier because it was an even clearer statement of his divinity. He claimed in that moment to be the judge of the world. And the force of the argument grows even more when Jesus adds that he was consecrated by God and sent into the world by him. If those to whom the law was given were called gods, then cannot the one whom God sent into the world call himself the son of God? That's the logical train of thought. It's complex, I know. But I want to explain that. Because I think it's a brilliant move. Jesus argued from Scripture. It didn't persuade them but it did make them think. He challenged them with the word of God that they claimed to believe and to know and to obey. Jesus was always doing this, wasn't he? I mean, we see this time and time again. He based everything he did on the Bible. He was always explaining himself, teaching himself, proving himself who he was from the Bible. True belief in Jesus is biblically reasonable. And he, everything Jesus has done in John's gospel, everything that we see in all of the gospel accounts, just goes to prove that, to bear that out. True belief in Jesus is also empirically verifiable. And that's what Jesus argued for next. So he said, hey, listen, I'm just, 
I'm, I'm pulling this from the Bible, the Bible that you guys know. But hey, in verses 37 and 38, he challenged them and said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, there is an immense amount of mercy in, in those verses right there. Jesus was always merciful. They wouldn't take Jesus at his word. Okay. Take him at his deeds. What did he do that disproved he was from the Father? What did he do that wasn't found somewhere in the Bible as a promise of the Messiah's coming? What did he do that wasn't a promise fulfilled? What did he do that denied his union with the Father? If they can't believe his works, why can they, words, why can they not, they not believe his works? Jesus was being merciful toward them. This is kind of one final plea. Look at my works and then listen to my words if you won't have it the other way around. But what did they do? Again, they sought to arrest him. I mean, is there anything more tragic than that? Standing before Jesus, listening to his words. I'm assuming they had seen some of his works as well. And having him plead with them to look at his words and his works. They got out the handcuffs. And they told him to shut up. It's utter tragedy. All that Jesus had said about what he would do for his sheep. If only they would just yield to his grace. Now I hope that none of us in this room are like these Jews. I hope no one here has an unbelieving heart. But if there are any, let me ask a question. And by the way, this is something you can ask your unbelieving friends, maybe when the time is right. Maybe you don't know what to do with Jesus. Lots of people don't. You just aren't sure that what he said and did is, is really true. Okay? But don't you want it to be true? Don't you want a shepherd like him who can care for you in all of your various needs? Who will never let you wander off and die? who will always know what you need before you even know what you need. Who will run to you when you're in trouble. Who will fight for you when you're in danger. Who will lead you where you should go. Who will tend to your wounds. Who will literally lay his life down to save you. Not just metaphorically. Not just theoretically. But really and truly, actually, lay his life down. Don't you want eternal, abundant life? Don't you want more than what you have right now? 
Don't you want to know that behind everything is a kind, loving, gracious, merciful God who can take your life in his hands and truly know you and truly care for you for forever? Don't you want that to be true? How can you know it is? That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this book. It's why God gave us the Bible. The kind of God that is presented to us in the Old Testament appears in flesh in Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus wasn't breaking new ground. He said that he is God. And he was building upon the foundation laid from the beginning all the way back to the very beginning Jesus' words and deeds are biblically reasonable. The Bible isn't just a religious book. It's also a book of history. We, We actually haven't found any historical evidence that refutes the Bible. Everything we find only confirms what the Bible says. And if you don't trust the Bible, Jesus' works are also empirically verifiable. He really did do the deeds recorded in the Bible. He really did rise from the grave. No one has ever been able to refute that it actually happened. And millions of people can bear witness to the truth that it did. So on one side, you have no witnesses. On the other, millions. It's not a bad argument. You can know because Jesus showed up in this world and said the things he said and did the things he did. You can know because because Jesus showed up in this world, it means that God is not sitting in some corner of the universe hiding from his people and then blaming them when they can't find him. No, he, he comes to his people. He showed up 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus to live and die and rise again, to give us the eternal, abundant life that our hearts long for. That very desire is proof that God is there. He aims to fill it. It's not made up. Jesus isn't hoodwinking his people. Everything he said and everything he did has the entire history of God's scripture holding it up and confirming it. In all of church history, all the Christians throughout all the ages, adding in their amen. Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said that in verse 35. He didn't show up to break it. He showed up to reveal how true it is, it has always been and always will be. The urging of this passage is to accept Jesus as Christ, to listen to his words and to consider his works. Is he not God incarnate? I mean, it comes down to that, doesn't it? Who do you say he is? Is he not the savior of the world? Will you not come into the door of his pasture? 
Will you instead stand outside with stones in your hands? Because in the end, those are the only two choices you really have. So which will it be? Eternal, abundant, abundant life. Or your own pride. At the end of verse 39, we see that somehow Jesus escaped from their hands. We don't, we don't know how. He's God. <laughs> That's how. In verse 40, we see Jesus returning to the Jordan where John had baptized at the beginning. This is kind of a bookend in a way. John chapter 1, we start with John appearing in the Jordan. And here we are nearing the kind of the first half of John's gospel. And we come back to John. John the Baptist. Jesus remained there and many came to him and many believed in him. I love it says many. It's not one or two. Many. Why did they believe? Verse 41. John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. It wasn't the signs in the end for them. It was the message. It was the word. It was the witness of, the, of John the Baptist that proved true. Jesus was who he said he was. And you know, we can't see Jesus' signs anymore like those first century eyewitnesses did. Man, I, I would love to see that. Wouldn't you? But what do we have? We have his word. And scripture cannot be broken. Everything that he said was true. All of that comforting, those comforting words that we looked at, that's not just to make you feel better. Because you truly are deeply, deeply loved by the risen Christ. So will you trust him? Will you listen and believe? Don't you want to? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Oh, what a gift it is. We thank you that even as Jesus was facing his enemies, he spoke words of comfort to the sheep. Words that give life to us. That can endure, help us endure in the hard times. That help us persevere. And Father, I pray for any who are in this room who may have a heart that's too hard that you would melt it by your grace. That they would come in through the door of the sheep and find their rest in his pasture. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.